as we continue on in worship now, we will attend to God's Word. Uh, This morning, our passage extends from the last few verses of chapter 44 of Isaiah through chapter 46 of Isaiah. So we'll read a couple selections from this passage. Uh, Ryan will read from us from Isaiah 46, and then Pat will read from us from Isaiah 45. And one big theme that you'll hear in these verses is that God accomplishes all of his purposes, that because he is God, no one else, nothing else can compare to him and nothing can stop God. And so we will hear that theme carried on again in the prophet Daniel. Uh, Lisa will come and read for us from Daniel chapter 2. And then lastly, we'll see this theme carried forward in the New Testament in Romans 8, 33 to 39. Audrey will come and read that for us to, to speak to us about how God cannot be stopped even in our salvation today. Um, and so let me now pray for the reading and preaching of God's word uh, so that our hearts will be open to trusting in God. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word. God, I pray that as your word is read now and as I preach your word, I pray, Lord, that you would enlarge our thoughts of you, enlarge our hearts for you, God, so that we can indeed see that your power is unique in all of existence and that you are to be trusted for that very reason. And so, Lord, speak this reality to our hearts by your word. Empower me as I preach your word to proclaim it faithfully and with boldness and confidence. Lord, we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Isaiah chapter 46, verses 5 through 13. To whom will you liken me and make me equal, and compare me, that we may be alike? Those who lavish gold from the purse and weigh out silver in the scales hire a goldsmith, and he makes it into a god. Then they fall down and worship. They lift it to their shoulders, they carry it, they set it in its place, and it stands there. It cannot move from its place. If one cries to it, it does not answer or save him from his trouble. Remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things of old. For I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is none like me. Declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things not yet done. Saying, My counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. Calling a bird of prey from the east, the man of my counsel from a far country. I have spoken, and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed, and I will do it. Listen to me, you stubborn of heart, you who are far from righteousness. I bring near my righteousness. It is not far off, and my salvation will not delay. I will put salvation in Zion for Israel, my glory. Daniel chapter 2, verse 20 and 21. Daniel answered and said, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, to whom belong wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. Woe to him him who formed him a pot among earthen pots does a clay say to him who forms it what are you making or your work has no handles woe to him who says to a father what are you beginning 
or to a woman, with what are you in labor? Thus says the Lord, the Holy One of Israel, and the One who formed him, Ask of me things to come. Will you command me concerning my children and the work of my hands? I made the earth and created man on it. It was my hands that stretched out the heavens, and I commanded all their host. Romans eight, thirty-three through 39 Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is it to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised? Who is at the right hand of God? Who indeed is interceding for us? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, For your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor heights, nor depths, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Well, beloved, our passage this morning is primarily a declaration of God's power to save. These words were written by Isaiah to bolster the confidence of God's people who were at that time a shattered people and say to them, God can restore you. God can save you. And so as we approach this passage this morning, I first want you to ask yourself the question, is there any way that you yourself doubt God's saving power? Is there any way in which you look to God for help, for deliverance, for salvation, and yet when you look to him in the back of your mind, you're still wondering, can God really hear me? Can God really do anything about this? When we look at God's saving power in the New Testament, we see that God promises to everyone who trusts in him three primary things. So I want to use these three things to summarize for us God's saving power, what we should hope in now that we are in this new covenant of Christ's blood. First, in God's saving power, he has promised to justify us. That is, he has promised to declare us righteous in his sight, through the blood of Jesus Christ. Romans 4, verse 5, and says, And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. And so, beloved, as we trust in the Lord, we should have confidence, we should be sure that we are righteous in God's eyes. Do you ever doubt that you are truly righteous in God's eyes? Do you ever think that God is unable or unwilling to declare you righteous? Do you struggle to find joy in the fact that you are perfectly righteous in the sight of God through Christ Jesus? Or perhaps you don't really struggle to think about how God could declare you righteous, but you doubt his power and willingness to declare somebody else righteous who maybe isn't yet believing. 
You really wonder, does God want to justify the ungodly? And you aren't very confident in God's saving power in this way. But God has not only promised to justify. Second, through Jesus Christ, God has also promised to sanctify. That is, he promises that all those who are declared righteous, all those who are justified in Christ Jesus, will also grow in their practical, everyday holiness, both in their outward action and in their inward thoughts and attitudes. Romans 6, verses 5 to 7 says, For if we have been united with Jesus in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For the one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. And so, beloved, if you have been united with Christ in justification, then you have also been united with Christ in death to the old self, the self of sin, and new life in a righteous and godly self. And this holiness, this sanctification that God promises to everyone who trusts in Jesus Christ is not even primarily about being moral or being a good person, The sanctification is most fundamentally about being a person who is happy in God. A person who is more restfully trusting in God's power. A person who is more hopeful about the future glory. Holiness is not a dour, hard thing. It is a joyful and life-giving thing. Do you ever doubt that God is able to actually give you joy? Do you doubt that God is able to transform your bad habits and your addictions to give you freedom? Do you doubt that God is able to take away your hopelessness and fill you with joyful expectation? Or again, perhaps you don't doubt this for yourself, but you do doubt God's power in behalf of someone else. Maybe it's your children. You're just really not sure that God is able to really keep them from sin and to sanctify them. Or some other loved one or friend, you're really wondering about somebody who seems like maybe they've been an infant Christian for decades and you're wondering, can, can God really change this person? Does he have the ability to do that? And then third and finally, in this new covenant, God promises to bring us safely home in the end. He promises us glorification. He has promised us that one day, even after these bodies of ours are planted in the ground, that he will raise us up in new glorious bodies to enjoy the radiant sunlight of his presence forever and ever in a new and fully renovated creation. Jude verse 24 says, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. Beloved, God promises to preserve you. And yet, do you ever doubt that God can really care for you in this way? You're not sure that he will bring you safely home? You feel like it's all in your control, under your power? Does this future hope that God has promised us seem very dim to you, like you're just never going to get there? Does it not seem entirely glorious and full of God's creative power? 
Beloved, in, in all these things, I hope some of you have seen ways that you do tend to doubt God's saving power. God's saving power in the New Testament tells us that he will justify, that he will sanctify, and that he will glorify. We see all these things put together in Romans 8 verse 30. It says, And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Notice that God is the subject of this verse. He sanctified. He justified. He glorified. God is the one who performs these actions. It is his saving power that is at work in all of these things. Just imagine for a moment, beloved, that you were a person with bold confidence in God in each of these three realms. That you fully believe and expect God to justify sinners. You fully believe and you expect God to make those people righteous whom he calls. And you fully believe and expect to be translated into a glorious body in the coming age with a future that is eternal and far better than the present. Beloved, imagine if that was just your confidence every day. Would you not be a joyful, powerful, indefatigable person? Oh man, if I really believed that God would do each of these things, nothing would stop me from proclaiming the message of salvation from the rooftops. How could it get any better than this? How could the promises, the hope, be any greater than these things? What problem in the world would not be solved? if greater and greater numbers of people were being justified and sanctified by God and full of earnest hope for the future? What would I fear in my future, in this new creation, if this future hope were vibrant and beyond doubt in my mind? In a sense, beloved, having these things is the fullness of life itself to experience and know our righteousness in Christ, to be growing in the same and to have our eye on that future inheritance that is unfading and imperishable and full of glory. Beloved, this is a life of joy and happiness and splendor. And yet, beloved, if I am honest, then every day of my life I do struggle to believe one, if not all, of these things. Some days when I wake up or after I stumble, I think, you know what, God, God can never change me. I just better give up on this idea of trying to be obedient to Jesus in every way. Of course, often this attitude is more subtle. I may not declare it in those terms, but by my words, But by my actions, if not by my words, then my failure to strive after godliness essentially says, God, I don't really think you're working in me. I don't really think that you can change me. Or I think, you know what? Right here, right now, I'm I'm pretty comfortable. I can't really imagine something coming in the future that's much better and much brighter than this. So let me just kind of relax and enjoy the comfort that I have right now. Again, I wouldn't articulate it in exactly that way, but by my actions, is that not what I say when I just kind of rest at ease in my life here and now instead of pressing on toward that heavenly prize that Jesus has won for me? 
Or again, some days in my despair, I think God could never truly count me as righteous. Just think of all the wicked things I have done. And again, whether I articulate it that way or not, this is the basic statement that I make when after committing some sin, I just kind of remain in that sin and continue to pursue it because I can't believe that God would actually separate me from that sin, that he would actually forget that it ever happened. And so I think, no, this sin just defines me. It is who I am. I I cannot believe that I am actually justified and forgiven. You see, beloved, for each of us here who calls ourselves according to the name of Christ, we struggle to believe these glorious promises that God has given. And when we do fail to believe and take hold of these promises, that is when in our lives we do experience the deepest despair and sorrow. When we think God cannot truly save me. He cannot truly justify me or sanctify me or glorify me. Surely his promise will fall somewhere along the way. And so, beloved, the passage that we look at this morning is for all of us. Because I know that all of us struggle in some way, shape, or form with unbelief. We struggle to truly have confidence that God can accomplish all of his saving purposes. Now, in the context of our passage this morning, the people that Isaiah is writing to, we're not looking so much for spiritual salvation as for a physical one. The people of Israel that Isaiah was writing to were a people who were in exile. They were far away from their home, and they were captives in Babylon. And Isaiah is writing to this people who are in the future from his time, about a hundred years beyond his time, and he is trying to comfort them with the message of God's power in the midst of their exile. And as we think about the exile that God's people were in at that time, we should understand that they truly were in the darkest of despair, that they had every reason to doubt God's saving power. That if anyone was crushed in spirit, believing that God had just given up on them, it ought to have been these exiles. Take just a little bit of time to think about how absolutely devastating their situation would be. These are the Jewish people whom God had promised this land over a thousand years before to Abraham. And they had inhabited this land for almost 800 years. And now they were not in it any longer. The only home that their people knew, the home that God himself had promised them, had been taken away from them. They were part of this culture. They were part of families whose whole identity was tied up in being the people of God in the promised land. And if they were not in that land, then who even were they anymore? They had lost one of the most central aspects of who they are. Indeed, their whole religion is dependent upon having a temple in Jerusalem where they can make sacrifices and have the Day of Atonement and all the festivals that God promised them. And they have no more festivals. They have no more sacrifices, no more temple. They have no place where they can meet with God. And to top it all off, it was their own sin that had gotten them ejected from the land in the first place. They had no one to blame but themselves. Surely if anyone had reason to think, God has abandoned me, God will not care for me, God does not look after me, it is these people. They themselves had rejected God, 
They had been removed from their land, and the only place they had to meet with God had been utterly destroyed. Not one stone was left on top of the other. And so Isaiah is writing to these people who just feel their lostness, feel that God has abandoned them. And so you see, they're even more devastated than we would be if something happened to Pittsburgh and Pittsburgh were destroyed and we all had to leave and move to a new town. Of course, we would be sad because so many of us have childhood memories here and all the good times we've had here, and yet we could build a life in a new place. And yet, for these people of Israel, losing Jerusalem was much more than just losing their home. It was as if they had lost their family, as if they had lost their own God. And they did not know where to turn or what to do. And so the point that I hope you understand from this, beloved, is that if you are here this morning, no matter how devastated you may feel, no matter how far away you may think God is from you, this passage speaks to you this morning. Because God was speaking to the people of Israel who were in exile in a foreign land about his saving power. And what the people of Israel were hoping for just sounded utterly absurd at the time. They were hoping for freedom from Babylon. Babylon was the mightiest nation in all the earth at the time. They were hoping for a return to Jerusalem, which was a hard journey and a costly journey that only the wealthiest people could even hope to make. And they were hoping for a restoration of the glory of Israel and of Jerusalem. Israel was not even a nation at the time any longer. They had all been taken away in chains. And so their hope, their idea of salvation seemed utterly absurd It would be as absurd as us hoping that we could retire at age 40 to some chalet in Switzerland or something. It's just something that we shouldn't even be thinking about. And the people of Israel, they had no right to think that somehow their nation could return to its former glory and they would be able to go back and Babylon would be destroyed. It was all just nonsense. And yet, in our passage this morning, God promises that he will accomplish the impossible on behalf of his people. And so, beloved, if you feel in despair this morning, whether it is spiritual despair, again, doubting God's saving power for you, or whether it is physical despair, some sort of physical distress that you're in and you're just not sure if there is ever going to be relief, I hope you will hear the words of this passage this morning about God's saving power on behalf of his people. And so as we look at the passage now, I want us to see three primary thrusts of these chapters that tell us about God's saving power. The first thrust of this passage that we are going to look at is that God, by his nature, is a creator God. God, by his nature, is a creator God. Second, we're going to see that God, by his nature, is someone who cannot be stopped and cannot be thwarted. And then third, we are going to look at how God is more powerful than anything on earth or in heaven. And so in those three ways, we will see that God will accomplish all of his saving purposes. 
So first, let's see the significance that God, by his nature, is a creator God. If you want to turn to chapter 44, verse 24, I'm just going to read a few verses from our passage this week that reiterate this message. And so 44, verse 24, it says, Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, who formed you from the womb. Notice that first statement of his creative power. He formed you from the womb. I am the Lord who made all things, who alone stretched out the heavens, who spread out the earth by myself. You see, God is saying that if he is the creator of everything, then what is there that he cannot do? Go down to verses 26 and 27. Who confirms the word of his servant and fulfills the counsel of his messengers, who says of Jerusalem, she shall be inhabited, and of the cities of Judah, they shall be built, and I will raise up their ruins. Who says to the deep, be dry, I will dry up your rivers. You see, he is speaking to the people of Israel in exile, saying, Just as I created this world, just as I stretched out the heavens, so I can say of the cities of Judah, of Jerusalem, she shall be inhabited, they will be built. Because God is a creator God, he is able to work the the seemingly impossible. He is able to create life where there formerly is no life, where formerly there is nothing at all. You can turn over to chapter 45, verse 7. God says, I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. Beloved, if God can create light out of darkness itself, then surely God can bring salvation even to the darkest of places even to the most sorrowful or heavy of heart, even to the one who has the most doubt about God's purposes for them. God can create light out of darkness. And then finally, look at 45 verse 18. For thus says the Lord who created the heavens, He is God, who formed the earth and made it. He established it. He did not create it empty, but He formed it to be inhabited. I am the Lord, and there is no other. You see, God is saying that he is the one who creates everything. He is the one who creates emptiness and fullness, joy and sorrow. And so nothing and no one can possibly stand in the way of the creative purposes of God. Indeed, in the New Testament, we see our salvation compared to God creating light out of darkness. In 2 Corinthians 4, verse 6, it says, For God, who said, Let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Beloved, before we came to God, there was nothing good in us. There was no raw material that God had to work with where he said, oh, I can shape this and I can make it into something nice. No, there was only darkness. And God said, let there be light in our hearts. And then there was salvation. There was justification. There was the beginning of the work of sanctification. And there is the sure hope of final glorification, all because of God's creative power, not because of anything we have done. It is the work of God and God alone. 
And because he can create something out of nothing, we can be sure that God is able to bring his promises to fruition in our lives. And so this is the first message of this chapter for us and for God's ancient people, that God is a creator God. And therefore, do not fear if something does not exist right now. God is able to make it so. He is able to make it come into existence. The second thing that we see repeated over and over in these chapters is that God, by his nature, is someone who cannot be stopped or thwarted. So again, look in chapter 44, verse 25. It says, God frustrates the signs of liars and makes fools of diviners, who turns wise men back and makes their knowledge foolish. So even the smartest people on earth, even the most deceitful people on earth cannot stand in the way of God's purposes. You can go to Isaiah 45, verse 22 and 23. He says, Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. By myself I have sworn, from my mouth has gone out in righteousness a word that shall not return. To me every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear allegiance. When this verse says that a word has gone out from my mouth that shall not return, God is saying that what he has purposed, that he is able to do. His purpose will not fail. Indeed, we see this highlighted most clearly in chapter 46, verses 8 to 11. If you look at that with me now. He says, remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things of old. For I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. Calling a bird of prey from the east, the man of my counsel from a far country. I have spoken and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed and I will do it. Beloved, let there be no doubt that the least of God's words will not come fully true. Again, beloved, if God says that he will justify the ungodly, then he will justify the ungodly. If God says that he will sanctify, that he will make us righteous, then he will make us righteous. And if he says that he will secure us to final glory, then he will secure us. God will bring all of his words to pass. If he has purposed, he will do it. And so again, we should take heart no matter what our despair, no matter what in us we see might defeat the purposes of God, we can know for certainty that we cannot thwart God's purposes because he is God alone. In fact, one of the more humbling things about this passage is how God even pronounces woe on those who will not submit to the purposes for which he is using them. And so if you go back to Isaiah 49, verses 9 and 10, These are somewhat famous verses because the Apostle Paul himself quotes them in Romans chapter 9. But Isaiah says, Woe to him who strives with him who formed him, a pot among earthen pots. Does the clay say to to him who forms it, What are you making? 
or your work has no handles? Beloved, the image that God is giving us there is that he is the potter, we are the clay. That means God is working upon us to accomplish all of his purposes, and we are simply being shaped by God's power. And for us to somehow look at God, who is the potter, who is shaping us, and for us to say, God, are you really making me like this? Can you really do this? I'm not so sure about this, is absurd as the pot saying to the potter, what are you making? Or your work has no handles. Beloved, we are to humbly submit to God's saving power, his saving work upon our lives instead of resisting it, instead of questioning whether God is really able to do these things. No, we are to believe, to have faith that God's saving power is upon us. And we are to agree with that saving power, submit to us and move forward in light of God's work upon us. Isaiah repeats the same metaphor again in verse 10. Woe to him who says to a father, what are you begetting? Or to a woman, with what are you in labor? Thus says the Lord, the Holy One of Israel, the one who formed him. Ask me of things to come. Will you command me concerning my children and the work of my hands? God is saying, will you question my saving power? Will you question my glorious purposes for your life? Don't question them. Joyfully accept them. Because nothing can thwart the power of God. Nothing can stop God's purposes. And so we can rejoice even in the deepest sorrow or the deepest fear that we may have. And now this third point is really a corollary of the second point. It's, it's just part of the second point, but this passage places special emphasis on this point, and so I want to separate this one out as well. And this third point is that God is more powerful than anything on earth or in heaven. Again, the second point was that God cannot be thwarted. And this third point here is to say that in particular, nothing on earth And nothing in heaven can thwart or stop God because God is more powerful than everything. If you go back to Isaiah 44 one more time, beginning in verse 28, it says, God, who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd and he shall fulfill all my purpose. Now, Cyrus, who is Cyrus? Cyrus is the king of Persia who is going to come very soon and who is going to crush the kingdom of Babylon. And as soon as he crushes the kingdom of Babylon, he gives a decree to the exiles of Israel to say, you can return to your land and I will give you money to rebuild your temple. And so God is saying, I promise to raise up someone who is even more powerful than the Babylonian empire, someone who is able to come and crush Babylon, and then I will put it into this ruler's heart, this all-powerful ruler, I will put it into his heart to send you home again and to build your temple once again. And so God is saying of Cyrus that I am more powerful even than Babylon. I am more powerful even than Persia. I am more powerful than anything and anyone on earth. This is the main message of the whole of chapter 45. And so again, begin with me in verse 28 of chapter 44. It says that God says of Cyrus, He is my shepherd and he shall fulfill all my purpose. 
saying of Jerusalem, she shall be built, and of the temple your foundation shall be laid. That's exactly what Cyrus was going to say in a few years' time. And then chapter 45, thus says the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have grasped, to subdue nations before him and to loose the belt of kings, to open doors before him. The gates may not be closed. I will go before you and level the exalted places. I will break in pieces the doors of bronze that cut through the bars of iron. I will give you the treasures of darkness and the hordes and secret places that you may know that it is I, the Lord, the God of Israel, who call you by your name. For the sake of my servant Jacob and Israel, my chosen, I call you by your name. I name you, though you do not know me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. I equip you, though you do not know me, that people may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is none besides me. I am the Lord, and there is no other." Beloved, God raises up even godless rulers to fulfill his purposes because they cannot match him in power. And he raises them up in such a way that all the earth will have to say that there is a sovereign God in heaven. Beloved, if there is no power on this earth that can thwart the purposes of God, then surely we should not doubt, we should not fear that God can accomplish all of his purposes. Even as we see the tragic news right now of the war in Ukraine, we can be confident as God's people that there is no authority except that which is established by God. And so God, no matter how tragic the situation may be, is working out good purposes for the sake of his people and for the sake of his glorious name. Beloved, God cares for his people no matter how fearful a situation they may be in. No matter how shambles it may look for the people of Israel, God is saying, I have purposes for you. I have an emperor that I am about to raise up who is about to accomplish all my purposes and who is about to rescue you. I am more powerful than Babylon. I am more powerful than Persia. God is more powerful than America. He is more powerful than Russia. God is over all. But not only is God more powerful than any earthly ruler, any earthly thing, God is also more powerful than any supernatural thing, than any other deity or any other God. You can look at Isaiah 46, verses 1 to 4. It says, Bel bows down, Nebo stoops. Those are the two primary gods of Babylon. God is saying, these gods, they bow down, they stoop. Their idols are on beasts and livestock. These things you carry are born as burdens on weary beasts. They stoop, they bow down together. They cannot save the burden, but themselves go into captivity. And then listen to the words of God in contrast. Listen to me, O house of Jacob, all the remnant of the house of Israel, who has been born by me from before your birth, carried from the womb. Beloved, do you see the contrast? These idols of Bel and Nebo, they must be carried. They are a burden to the one who worships them. And yet God is saying, I carry you. I have carried you from before you were born. And then the beautiful promise of verse 4, even to your old age, 
I am he. And to gray hairs, I will carry you. I have made and I will bear. I will carry and will save. Beloved, throughout your life, no power of earth, no power of heaven can come against you because God promises to carry you throughout your life. Because he is not an idol who needs our service. Rather, he is the true God who serves and strengthens us, who carries us. He is more powerful than any idol, any other God that we could hope to bring salvation And then finally, look at chapter 45, verses 16 and 17. It says, All of them are put to shame and confounded. The makers of idols go in confusion together. But Israel is saved by the Lord with everlasting salvation. You shall not be put to shame or confounded to all eternity. Beloved, serve Israel anything else, any other God, believe in any other earthly power, and you will surely be frustrated, you will surely be sorrowful. And yet God is greater than all of these deities, and none of these deities can stop the saving power of the Lord. God says that you shall not be put to shame or confounded to all eternity. Again, beloved, that link of justification to sanctification to glorification shall not be broken. There is not one who God calls to himself whom he will ever lose. His saving power is matchless. Beloved, the conclusion of all these chapters should be the very conclusion that we read from the Apostle Paul in Romans 8. I'd love to read it for us one more time. Romans 8, beginning in verse 33. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Here, there, do you have any doubt about your sanctification? Do you think that anyone can bring a charge against you, can declare you unrighteous when God has declared you righteous? There is no one, as verse 33 says, it is God who justifies. And nothing can thwart him. He can create something from nothing. His purposes cannot be stopped. Then Romans 8 verse 34. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Because God has done this, no one can condemn, beloved. Verse 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Can something break into the salvation that God has purchased to end our salvation? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, just to heighten the problem, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Does that mean that God's salvation has stopped, that his hand is somehow weakened? Verse 37 answers this. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. 
Beloved, your salvation is secure beyond a shadow of a doubt. It is God himself who has won this salvation for us. And it is him who will see us safely home. And so do not doubt, do not fear that you are justified. Do not fear that God's power can work upon you to sanctify you. Do not fear that you will reach that eternal home of glorified existence in the new creation. God has secured it and he will bring it to pass. And so, beloved, if you have not trusted in Christ for this salvation, then trust in him this morning and God's saving power will begin to work in you even now. And beloved, if you have trusted, but you find yourself, for whatever reason, doubting that God really is at work in you, that he really can change you, then raise your estimation of God once again this morning. Let God be God. Let yourself be the clay. And say, Lord, whatever your purposes are for me, that I will believe and that I will pursue, knowing that your purposes cannot fail. Beloved, we know this with absolute certainty, that God is able to accomplish all of his purposes in your life. And God's purposes are, are good, they are for your glory, and they are for the glorification of Jesus Christ. And so we praise his glorious name.